Excellent. Well, if you are new and visiting Sovereign Grace, thanks for coming. Thanks for being a part of who we are minimally this morning. And if, if like Brandon said, you can dive on starting point, that would be great. Some people always ask, what is starting point actually for? And the point of it isn't just so you can keep attending on a Sunday. It's so you can get involved in the real life of the church, which is actually our midweek groups. It's serving, it's giving, it's being a real part of our community uh, for proper. So please come on there and see as a wonderful opportunity to get connected. Church isn't Sunday morning. That's called a service. Church is family, and that involves every day of the week. And starting point really is the entrance into that. Listen, we're starting, oh, sorry, we're carrying on in a five-part series this week called The Race of Our Lives. If you want a uh, title for this morning's message, it's Running Balanced. And I'd be grateful if you turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 1. You know, I've been spending time in 2 Timothy chapter 1 this week in preparation for today. And as we read these words, I want to encourage you that this passage that is before us today was written with passion, it was written with intensity, it was written with conviction and heart. Because these words that we're about to read today were written by the Apostle Paul as he awaited his execution. He's aware that this is probably the last time he'll be able to communicate with Timothy. And so I want us to read this passage as if we were Timothy. I want us to read this passage as if this letter was addressed to us Because in all reality, it is addressed to us. This word is God-breathed. It's alive. God addresses us through his word still today. And so we're going to read the opening 14 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord to you. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around this letter, We gather around a man who is about to be executed and is passing something important on his child in the faith. And Lord, we recognize that ultimately these aren't Paul's words. These are your words. These are breathed out by you. You are taking us to what is most important in this race. And so Lord, would you bless us today? Would you open our eyes? Would you refresh us? Would you rebalance us? Or would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in this race of our lives that we are all in, there are many important things. The local church in small group fellowship, it's so important. We need each other. If we're going to make it through this race, it's not a lone ranger for Jesus. 
But no one's a lone ranger for Jesus anywhere through the Bible. It's not Jesus and me. It's always Jesus and we all the way through the Bible. And it's because in this race, we need others around us. We need others to cheer us on, to encourage us, to help us, to support us. And in truth, they need us as well. That's why the writer to the Hebrews that talks to us so much about the race also tells us to not forsake meeting together. Because he knows we're all so important to each other when it comes to the race. Sanctification and the pursuit of holiness. It's also really important for the race. We're to set aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If we're going to run fast, if we're going to run well, we have to set things aside. Well, that's what sanctification really is. That's why we have growth groups and gospel communities, because we take that seriously, aware that, you know what, we really need to deal with the old self in our lives. And then there's worship and prayer and fasting. All these things and more given to help us grow in our dependence upon the Lord, the founder and perfecter of our faith that we're always meant to look to in this race. And yet here in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul points Timothy, and indeed then us, to that which is of first importance, that which is primary, that which is so important that we never move on from, that we never fumble. He points our attention to that which is the main thing. And the thing that he points us to in 2 Timothy chapter 1 is the gospel. The thing that he wants Timothy to so understand. Timothy, there are many important things, but there's one thing more important than all the others. And it's the gospel. It's the life and death and and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the realities that all that has to do with you and the people around you in the kingdom of God. See, there's no doubt that when it comes to Paul, he is without doubt passionate about the gospel. All the way through the New Testament, you see him as a man passionate about the Gospels. And to the Corinthians, he said to the Corinthians, I deliver to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. And then he goes on to tell them, and I have resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It would appear that each and every week of the Corinthian life, he's been trying to help them see, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. That's been the one hammer and the one nail that he's hit it on every week, helping them see it's all about the gospel. To the Ephesians, he plans that church himself. For three years, day in, day out, he's preaching the gospel to them. He's trying to help them see what it looks like to know and apply and proclaim the gospel. He then leaves them and he writes them a letter. It's the letter that we've all got in the Bible. It's the book of Ephesians. And he spends half of it reminding them about the gospel. He doesn't assume that they understand it. He's aware you're going to forget this. So as for you, remember who you were, remember who you are, remember what Christ has done. All the way through the Bible, from 1 Thessalonians to 2 Timothy, what you discover is that without doubt for Paul, the gospel is the main thing. The gospel is that which is of worth first importance. And so it shouldn't surprise us to discover that when we get to 2 Timothy, Paul's final letter to his child in the faith. That he wants to remind young Timothy, Timothy, there are many important things when it comes to this race. But Timothy, there's a first thing. A main thing. A main thing that all other things derive from. And so Timothy, I'm soon going to die. Timothy, my ministry is coming to an end. My life is drawing to a close, Timothy. Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Timothy, follow it, guard it, treasure it, hold it back. And each and every time when he's talking about that, as you examine the text, you realize each and every time he's talking about the gospel. He's trying to help Timothy see the gospel. It isn't just your ticket into the race. It's your fuel and balance for every single day and every single step within the race. Timothy, this is everything. Now John Stott, in his commentary on 2 Timothy, says, For all around us, we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, fumbling it, in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. Now, that was written by Mr. Stott in 1973, two years before I was born. I would argue we need that quote no less today. 
All around us, you see churches relaxing their grasp on the gospel, relaxing their grip. And so the gospel becomes something that we enter into the race in, and then we never hear about it ever again as we move on to other things. Mr. Stop would say, no, that's fumbling the gospel. That's forgetting about the gospel. It's no longer keeping it the main thing. That's why when we planted Sovereign Grace Church of Sydney, that appears to be Sovereign Grace Church of Warunga growingly, we sought to build it on the gospel. We sought to build the gospel. And so we even came up with a mission statement that says our, our mission at Sovereign Grace Church is to build together a community of believers who are passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I still remember writing that. I was on my desk in Newport, Wales, UK, crying out to God for grace of, Lord, what do you want us to build? And that's what I came up with. That we want to be a church that is passionate about knowing, applying, and proclaiming the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Understanding that in this race there are many important things, but our main thing. And understanding that Paul's emphasis is always on the gospel. Our emphasis in this church is very deliberately then and continues to be on the gospel. We need to be gospel-centered for this race. It's what will balance us. So the question what I want to answer then today is, why? Why gospel-centered? Why is it so important that the gospel stands at the center of everything we do and I trust as we look at it today, you'll be freshly encouraged, freshly focused for the race that we're in, and freshly balanced. We will never move towards the gospel unless we talk about it. We'll just drift away from it and then suffer the consequences. So why is it so important we keep the gospel at the center of our race? And I don't just mean our corporate race, I mean your individual race. When we stand before the Lord on that last day, we're not just going to stand there as a group. You're going to stand there as an individual. And a big part of my role and the pastoral team's role is to prepare you this day to run in light of that day. When you see him. Why is it so important then that we keep the gospel at the center of this race, corporately and individually? Well, there's four reasons. Completely bucking the trend. It's not a three-part sermon. It's a four-part sermon. Four reasons to why I think Paul so encourages us all the time to keep the gospel the main thing. Here's the first. Number one, the gospel motivate the gospel will motivate us as we've seen over the last few weeks we really are in the race of our lives are we not hebrews 12 verse 1 says therefore since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us it's so dramatic, it's so inspiring, it is God's word. He's helping us see, listen, you've been called by God and his grace and have been entered into a race, and it is the race of your lives. The stadium around your life has been filled, and it has been filled with a great cloud of witnesses. All the men and women of the past who have finished their race and finished it well, and now they're peering on, looking at you and cheering you on, helping you see, listen, he was faithful to us, he'll be faithful to you. Keep running, keep going. And each and every time as we run, it is important that we run and look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And yet, make no mistake, don't be fooled on this issue. Not everybody wants you to run. There is one who doesn't want to see you running at all. Who wants to pull you over and have a few chats with you about this race. And he's one that likes to masquerade, not as Satan as the one who he is, but as the father of light. See, Jesus himself, in John chapter 10, verse 10, says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And yet I came that you may have life and that in abundance. You know, I think Satan is often somebody we don't think about at all. We just think, oh yeah, that's the one. Yeah, Jesus defeated him. We're all cool. We're Christians. We're cool. Yeah, cool. But actually, the Bible makes it clear that, listen, don't be fooled by him. And Paul says to the Corinthians and to the Ephesians, you must be mindful of his schemes. But he walks around like a roaring lion. He is still a thief. He is still a robber. He still wants to steal. He can't get you out of the race. 
For God in his grace ensures that you will finish. But Satan can distract you. And as I was thinking about it this week, about this idea that Paul's exhorting us to, to be mindful of his schemes, I, I wonder whether we really are mindful of his schemes. Whether we just don't really think about them. As I've thought about them this week, and having been a pastor for 20 years, here's what I think is our biggest danger when it comes to the scheme of Satan towards you and me when it comes to the race. It's the scheme of distraction. Not the scheme of persecution. That's why they face in India and Pakistan and Nepal. They run their hearts out because they're aware there is one that's trying to take me out. I must remain focused on the king. I'm running. Just this week, I was chatting to Diona, one of my good friends in Liberia, who leads our churches in Liberia. I said, how's it going? He said, listen, yeah, it's good. The Lord is good. We're seeing people come to know the Lord. But let me just send you a picture. He sent me a picture, and it was of a young man sitting outside a petrol station at 4 o'clock in the morning because they are starting to run out as an entire nation of petrol and fuel. They are going through major economic crisis. He said, look, it would be helpful if you could be praying for us about that. But listen, we're running hard. We're loving the Lord. You think, whoa, this is so different to my world. In some of those countries, they understand what persecution is. I think one of our biggest challenges is not persecution from the world, it is seduction by the world. And then we get distracted. Distracted from running at all. I mean, the words that Paul uses in this race are words like run, endure, strain forward. Press on. I mean, they're very emotive words, aren't they? Look around. Keep running. Don't give up. And yet, if we pay attention, what we discover is there is a voice in the crowd that has a few concerns to share for us within it. And so, so listen, Dave said on Sunday that we're in the race of our lives. That's good. It is. It's good. And you can attend to that later on down the track. But right now, you need to give yourself to your career. You need to give yourself to what matters most. I mean, not everybody lives in Sydney, you know. Not everybody can pay these prices. And so sure, the race, it's important. You can do that later on. But right now, give yourself to your career. Why? So that you can actually afford to live here and stay here and bring your kids up. You can even train them in the way they should go, doing that, you know. It's a good thing. So race, yeah, but not, not right now. And listen, you know, it talks about endurance in this race, that's important. Of course, you want to enjoy, you want to keep going. You've got to think about the kids as well, you know. I mean, there's private school to attend to, and there's sports, and there's education, and there's drama and dance. I mean, you wouldn't want your kids to go without, right? I mean, if you're a really good parent and you love your kids, then you would understand you've got to work hard and earn lots of money so that you can support the kids. And look, church is important. It's really important that you go whenever you can, but it's also important that the kids have friends and are involved in things, right? I mean, that's what rounds them as an individual. And listen, this church that you go to, it, it keeps talking about straining forward, straining forward. And I know it's in the Bible and all that, and that's important. It is important, but what about you? What about me time? What about rest? There's a big world out there to see, you know. You don't want to be cooped up in Sydney all the time. You want to be traveling about, right, and then go see the world. So that straining forward thing, yeah, I think you can in your later years. But right now, you've got a mortgage to pay for. You've got a house that needs that white picket fence sort of building around it because that's really what will make you happy and fulfilled in your life. And there's a big world out there to see. So just make sure, you know, as you're running the race, Easter, oh, holidays, Christmas, oh, holidays, because you'll need to rest. It's the only way you're going to manage in your life. And listen, you know that church that talks about pressing on, that keeps talking about pressing on? It's intense. I think you need to press on with your plans. And they talk about the importance of counsel, but I wouldn't too worry about that too much. I would press on with what you want to do because you understand what you need to do to make you happy. They don't understand. In fact, no one understands. In particular, the pastors, they don't understand anything. So listen, you've got this. It's easier to say sorry afterwards than... You know, ask anybody about it and then have the embarrassment of maybe being challenged. You know, what I've just described there is kind of what I feel like I do for a living in terms of untangling that mess. And genuinely, every single time it breaks my heart. You see good people who love the Lord, who are running their life. I'm all about Jesus. 
And they're all in and you are cheering it on and fanning it aflame and saying, mate, this is awesome, keep going. And somewhere along the line, they got distracted. And they move away. And they keep stepping away. And they're not asking any questions anymore. They're not looking for any counsel anymore. In fact, groups they can barely make. And you watch somebody who once was passionately loving Jesus cooling down. There's only one person that loves that. Satan loves that. Because he just took you out the race. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Well, how can we make sure that we run in this race passionately in a way that is sustained? Here is the remedy. It's the gospel. It's being reminded each and every day of your life of the gospel. Being reminded that I have been chosen by the King of kings and Lord of lords. Being reminded that he's forgiven me of my sin. He's reconciled me to have a relationship with him. Realizing that I am an ambassador of Christ and I get one shot at this and then I'm dead. Say I live to a hundred. It's going to go like that when I consider the millennia that I'm going to be in heaven with him for all eternity. My life has been purchased by another. I am no longer my own. I am Christ's. That only comes to us when we live day in, day out, reminding ourselves of the gospel. But when we don't and we close these books, what was that you were sharing? You know what? It has been a difficult season. And off you go. My friends, the remedy is the gospel. A.W. Tozer says it this way. It says, The church is constantly being tempted to accept this world as home. But if she is wise, she will consider that she stands in the valley between the mountain peaks of eternity past and eternity to come. For the past is gone forever and the present is passing as swift as the shadow on the sundial of Ahaz. Even if the earth should continue a million years, not one of us could stay to enjoy it. And so we would do well to think of the long tomorrow. Oh, what wonderful counsel. We would do well to think of the long tomorrow. We would do well to understand this is not my home. Heaven is my home. And I will be there sooner than you think. How do we think about the long tomorrow? By keeping the main thing the main thing. By reminding ourselves every day through songs, through the word, through prayer, that the gospel is what I'm all about. My life has been purchased with a price. And so I don't want to be in the race of our life that Sydney sets for me. I want to be in the race of our life to Christ, the only one that really matters. The gospel is powerful, right? That's not the only reason why we need to keep it at the center, though. It doesn't just motivate. Number two, the gospel unites. It unites. You know, we've been learning here about the metaphor of the race. And I got asked a few weeks ago, is this like a competitive race? Do some people win and some people lose? And you know, Well, in the Bible, it's always a team race. It's a team race. It's not the Olympics. It's more akin to the tough mudder. And I'll be looking more of that next week. But it is. You know, it's a race that a team runs together. There are obstacles in the race that you're going to think, I can't do it. I can't do it. And you will because your team will grab you and pull you over. You'll get there. That's why we need each other once again. It is a team race. And because it is a team race, unity in the local church is absolutely vital. See, where there is unity in a team, what you receive is encouragement and favor and blessing from those around you. Where there is disunity, there will be distraction and destruction and sorrow around you. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all that Paul champions unity again and again and again in his letters. Most letters have a section on unity. So Romans chapter 15, verse 5, he says, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's praying for them that they would receive unity. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. Be completely humble and gentle and patient, bearing with one another in love. Listen, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort, leaning in, do all you can to keep the unity. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith in the gospel. To the Apostle Paul, unity is oh so important. To the Apostle Paul, unity is vital in any local church. Great! That's actually really hard. Why? Because there are a ton of things to fall out on. There are a ton of things for a church to divide up over. Are you aware of that? <laughs> are you sensitive to that? I'll give you a few. Global warming. Some people will say, this is right. We need to be doing all we can. We should recycle everything. In fact, I cannot believe we're using cups to pour our coffee into, rather than like, you know, keepy cups. And other people are like, nah. Now, it's just the sunspots. It's the sunspots. It gets hot and there's this cycle and, and it warms up the sea, so the carbon dioxide, and that's what we're reading. Two sides of coin. But when we start grouping off on those issues, these things start to become really important. They start to become vital in church law. Politics. Trump. Australian politics. Well, you know what? Which is the sort of which is the Christian party? None of them. But people start to say, no, it's definitely this, this group or it's definitely this group. And I can't believe if you really love the Lord that you're voting for them. Whoa, I see. Immunizations. I got asked a while ago, does this church have an immunization policy? No! Because this church is a Bible, not like immunization. So if you want to immunize your kids for the glory of God, great, do it for the glory of God. You don't immunize your kids for the glory of God, great, don't. I don't really care. It's up to you. Whereas some people really care. Oh, they really care. Well, if you don't have an immunization policy, I'm not sure I can put my kids in kids' ministry. Okay. Well, then, don't be kids in kids' ministry. We're not going to make a rule in the church that's not in the Bible just to treat your felt need. About health. Some people are super healthy. Like mega healthy. People like me. People are super healthy. <laughs> Whether just aware health is such a big deal, you know. Why? Well, because my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It, well, <laughs> it's not a very good temple that I'm looking at. But nonetheless, other people, they think that three good meals a day are like, you know, Macca's, Pizza Hut, and Domino's. And you think, yeah, I understand that. I feel the pain. And that's okay. But it's not okay when things rise up to be, this is vitally important. If we really love Jesus, this will be something in our midst. What about schooling? If you really love your kids, should you homeschool? Should you do Christian school? Or should you do public school? But public school, that would be awful. There would be people that don't know Jesus there. A Christian school, that could be a good in-between. Homeschooling, what do we do with that? They're all valid reasons. All valid things for the glory of the Lord. Wonderful. The problem comes when we say, no, these aren't just reasons. These are things that are biblical. We should be doing these if we really love our kids. Church, no. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. The solution, the remedy to understanding diversity in the local church is not uniformity. It is unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what causes you to stand together. So you can disagree on hundreds of issues. But I am running with this man. I am running with this woman. Even though I disagree on most things they seem to stand for. But I am running with them for the glory of God. Why? Because they are my brother and sister in Christ. They are family to me. I am united to them. And so I proudly run with them for the rest of my days until Jesus returns or until Christ calls us home. That's what Paul champions all the time because he understands you're going to need each other if you're going to run race, run well in this race. But if you dis, dis, to find yourself distracted with all sorts of secondary issues and make them primary, you will disintegrate your local church. There will not be unity that brings encouragement and favor and blessing. There will be distraction and destruction and sorrow. So what's the remedy? You keep the main thing the main thing. You keep the gospel at the center of everything we do, knowing it and applying it and proclaiming it. The answer isn't uniformity. It is unity in the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And what a beautiful fruit that is, don't you think? You can do life with a group of people that maybe you would have never met or encountered outside of Christ. Good. 
Because they're your brothers and sisters and you run with them all the days of your life. Because you're in a greater race now. It's not about politics or school or health or food, no. It's about being ambassadors of Jesus Christ and so we link arms around the gospel and run with all our mind. The gospel motivates. The gospel unites. Number three, the gospel guards. It guards us. And in particular, it guards us from the bad fruit that comes with unbiblical thinking about our salvation. And my friends, when we drift away from the gospel, there will be all sorts of unbiblical thinking that starts to come as it pertains to our salvations. And you will be, I guarantee it, in a world of hurt. See, one of the things that's most striking to me about this text is that Paul, as he talks to Timothy and relates to Timothy, he doesn't understand that Timothy's understanding or appreciation or grasp of the gospel is sufficient. Okay, He's not working on the premise that, Timothy, I already think you know this, the gospel, so we can move off that. No, even though Timothy has known the scriptures from infancy, even though Timothy has been wonderfully well-trained, as he tells us, by his grandmother uh, Lois and his mother Eunice, even though Timothy has been personally trained and mentored by the Apostle Paul himself, who is like a Duracell bunny when it comes to the gospel and talks about the gospel all the time, even though all those things have been the story of Timothy's life, when he writes to him now in verses 9 and 10 and throughout the remainder of the letter, he talks to Timothy about the gospel. Timothy, don't forget the gospel. Don't move off the gospel. Timothy, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He never assumes that Timothy's just got it all. If that was Timothy, how much more do we need to be around it? And I believe that one of the reasons why Paul seeks to hit this nail to Timothy again and again and again is because he understands that when we forget the gospel or when we move on from the gospel, there are so many bad fruits and temptations that come our way when it comes to understanding wrongly our salvation. For example, when we forget the gospel, Here's the first thing that comes knocking. Legalism. Every single time, legalism will come knocking at your door. What is legalism? Well, legalism is basing our relationship with God on our own performance before God. It's what legalism is. It's basing our relationship with God on our, on our own performance before God, as if like we're on the voice or something, and we sing and hopefully the chair will turn around. You know, growing up, I used to just think of that as the Pharisees. So I didn't think anybody was actually a legalist today, because that's what the Pharisees are. You know, you come across them in the Bible, and you're like, you know, particularly when you're eight, nine years old, boo, Pharisees, boo. Not realizing when you're booing, you're probably a Pharisee yourself, self-righteousness. But boo is the Pharisees. I had no clue that actually I was growing up like a little legalist myself, a little Pharisee myself. And even when I first became a Christian, I had failed to understand the difference between experiencing grace and earning grace. And as a result, I was a legalist. I was a plate spinner. See, so let me explain. I remember growing up in Spalding in Lincolnshire. Spalding in Lincolnshire, there's nothing to do, like zilch. Oh, I forget that. There was a pool. That was it. That's <laughs> what he did every Sunday. We go to the pool. The middle of winter. I know, it's freezing. We go to the pool because that's all there is to do. But once a year, the circus would come to town. And that was awesome. When the circus came to town, it was the best thing of the year. Everybody in the town went, all 50 of us. We all went to the circus every year. It was just really sweet and really great thing to, to be around. And one of my favorite things at the circus every time was the plate spinner. I'm sure you've all seen how this works. The stage gets filled with plates. Well, sticks first of all. And then he puts a plate on and he starts spinning and goes to the next all these poles are sticking up with all these plates. And by the end, you know, he's here and he's spinning the plates. And then, of course, when you're a kid in the audience, you're going, it's falling, it's falling. So they pretend not to notice. And then eventually it's about to fall and they'd run over and try and pick him up. And you just think, oh, so awesome. Well, I was reading the book Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney and I realized that the plate spinner is pretty much how I'd been living my life. That's what legalism is. Let me explain. See, when you first become a Christian, you're dead excited, right? Or you should be. If you just become a Christian, you're not excited. I'm already a bit nervous for you. 
you should be excited. Your life is about to dramatically change. You understand that Jesus lives and has died in your place. Amazing. So when you first become a Christian, usually you're like, this is awesome. I am in. Give me everything. So that's what Christians do. We give you everything. So we explain to you, listen, and now in your newfound faith, this is awesome. You should start reading the Bible. The Bible. Great, I don't have one. No problem. Come over to the bookshop. I'll give you one. Here's a Bible. Where should I start? Well, start, start with Mark. And then maybe move on to Acts or Romans. Or, okay. Along goes the first play. It's a great play. And then somebody says to you, listen, how's your Bible reading going? Oh, it's going well. You should start memorizing scripture. Because you really want to hide it in your heart. That's what the Bible takes. Oh, okay, great. So on goes another play. And then somebody says, I think you should start praying. Now that you've really become a Christian, you don't want to be just reading the Bible. You want to be praying before the Lord and meditating on the Lord and adoring the Lord. And It's all wonderful stuff. Great, let's put on another play. And then somebody says, hey, listen, what's your outreach looking like? You telling people about Jesus? Oh, no, 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 not just yet, but I probably shouldn't. Great. Start telling people about Jesus. On goes another play. Are you coming to church every week now that you're a Christian? Church? Well, like every week. Uh-huh. Yeah, good. Yeah, don't forsake me together. Okay. You go to church and then they come to church and you hear about starting point. You should really join the church and you should really become a part of a gospel community and a growth group, right? Because for so many reasons, it's important. We do life together. Awesome. On goes another plate. Church everywhere. Gospel community everywhere. And then somebody sits you down and says, hey, listen, now you're a part of the church. Are you serving? Because Jesus was a servant. Jesus is all about serving. He said, to be like him and imitate him, you need to serve. It's so important. Okay, yeah, great. I'm, no, no, I'm not serving just yet, but I should. This good. So on goes another plate. And somebody says, somebody told you about giving. You know, where your treasure is, there is your heart. And it's so important to understand we're, we're stewards of God's resources. Okay, no, 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 I haven't started doing that. Okay, no problem. Let's put you on a course to go through that. And on goes another plate. And the story goes on. Now, are all these plates good plates? Yes. But are they ways of earning God's grace? No. And that's what I never understood. So when I'm spinning these plates really well, when I'm doing a great job, I'd be standing at the front, oh, you're amazing. I know you accept me and love me. And when there's a few plates falling off, I'd be sitting at the back or not even coming to church because I think I'm just a terrible Christian. I don't know where I'm at. I don't know what's going on. He must hate me. My friends, when it comes to earning God's grace, I want to encourage you can let each and every plate smash to the ground and he will still love you and sing over you and accept you. Because he accepts you through the finished work of Jesus Christ, not your plates. It isn't your plates that make you acceptable before God. No, it is the finished work of Jesus Christ that makes you acceptable before God. These plates are just designed to help you experience his grace. And there is a massive difference between earning grace and experiencing grace. You are accepted by God through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. These plates now just get you to experience that and enjoy that. Are they important? Yeah, it's how you mature as a Christian. It's what the race looks like. It's a great thing. But if you think they are earning grace, then I want to encourage you, let each and every one of them smash to the ground and you'll still hear the Father say, I love you. You are my child. And you're acceptable to me, not because of your Bible reading and your prayer or your worship and your evangelism. No, you are acceptable to me through faith alone in my son. Isn't it wonderful? When we are around the gospel and hearing the gospel, we live in the good of that. But when we forget, you will find this performance treadmill starts to come a part of your life, and it is terrible. I lived it. Did it. Don't go well. It's just depressing. That's why Paul speaks about it so clearly all the way through Galatians, helping him see what has bewitched you. You came in on the gospel of grace. Now it appears to be the gospel of works. What are you doing? It's not about works. It's about Christ and Him crucified alone. When we forget the gospel, legalism will always be at our doors. Likewise, subjectivism. Subjectivism is when we base our view of God on our changing feelings and emotion. When we base our view on how God maybe feels about us on our changing feelings and emotions. I mean, I don't know about your life, but my life is at best a roller coaster. You know? 
It's just like, oh my goodness, sometimes I feel exhilarated. I'm coming down the other side. Woo! Isn't it great to be a Christian? I'm loving my life. And other times I can feel it chunking up, ching, 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 anything. Oh, please, Lord, no. No, don't make me go down there. I mean, it just depends what's going on in your life. It can be a roller coaster, can't it? You can be going through plain sailing. And then you have a week like last week where the floods come and your house is six foot underwater and you think, I hate my life. I don't know what's going on with my life. It's a roller coaster. It's life. And I think when we wrongly understand the way God works, we can think of our life and our feelings towards God, which sometimes can be really high and sometimes really low, and assume that that must be the way God feels about us as well. Sometimes he really loves us, and other times he's not too keen. He's busy with somebody in Kuwait. And then we go like that all the time. It's a horrible way of living. What's the remedy? Well, it is understanding that we are not called by God to think with our feelings. We're called to stand on the word of God and be aware, how does he feel about me? I'll tell you how he feels about me. Despite whatever else is going on in my life, he loves me passionately and particularly. How do I know? Because for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. At the right time, he sent forth his son. For who? For me. So it is not based on how I feel about him. It is based on the truth of scripture and his feelings towards me do not change. He accepts me and he loves me and he sings over me because of the finished work of Jesus Christ in my place. Make sense? That's the power of the gospel. You forget the gospel, welcome to your life. And then there's condemnation. Condemnation. The reality of how we can be more focused on our sin than on God's grace. C.J. Mahaney in his wonderful book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, which I'd encourage all of you to get and read if you haven't, he talks about Kathy the comic strip. It's this comic strip that's in a paper there in the United States. and As with all comic strips, there's four different scenes and there's thought bubbles coming from their faces. The first scene, then it says, things I should have done at work and things I should have said to Irvin. So there's this girl standing there and she's got these thought bubbles coming from her mind. Things I should have done at work and things I should have said to Irvin. The next scene, things I promised myself that I'd never do again that I did anyway. Ways I made myself miserable that it could have been avoided. The third scene. Things I could have done for my family, my puppy, my friends, my co-workers, my neighbor, my finances, my home, my closet, my diet, and millions of people in need who I've never met. Ever felt like that? You're just like, I don't cut it. Anyway. Every part of my life, I seem to be bombing it. Ever felt that? I have. And then you get to the fourth scene. She says, for even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. You know, that's what condemnation is like. Even when I'm not going anywhere, I have 300 pounds of luggage with me. All my failures all my past, all the sins that I've done, not just like this week, but this month and this year and in my life. Even when I'm standing still, I'm overwhelmed with condemnation. How could a good God love me? Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he answers that. As we read, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. When we give our lives to Jesus Christ, He forgives us of our sin. It is done. It is finished. There's therefore now no condemnation. If you are here carrying 300 pounds of luggage around with you, you have forgotten the gospel. It has gone from your life. Because when you understand the gospel, you realize He died for that. He forgave me of that. And therefore there is now no condemnation for me because I am in Christ Jesus. And so when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Make sense? When we gather around the gospel of Jesus Christ, we live in the good of forgiveness and adoption and redemption. When we forget it, legalism, 
Objectivism, condemnation will be knocking right at your door. And so Paul writes Timothy and he reminds him of the gospel and he exhorts him towards the gospel. As I said before, if Timothy needed that, then how much more do we? He had a grandma who used to talk to him about Jesus all the time, a mum who used to talk to him about Jesus all the time, a disciple, a disciple who used to talk to him about Jesus all the time. If Paul recognizes Timothy needs to hear the gospel all the time, how much more do you and I need to be singing the gospel and reading about the gospel and preaching to the gospel to yourself? I'll give you a clue. Daily. Every single day, you will drift away from the gospel and towards legalism and subjectivism and condemnation. Every single day, you will be more susceptible to the lies of the enemy trying to distract you. Every single day, you will think of a thousand things that should cause you to be in disunity with those around you. Every single day. And so every single day, you have to get up in the morning and remind yourself, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. My life is not my own. I am his. Lord, I run for you and you alone. Every day. Because every day you'll forget. We don't pay attention to our hearts when it comes to the gospel. Every day you will move away from it. If you think Sunday alone is enough to be reminded of the gospel, you are wrong. And that's just asking for like a roller coaster life. Sundays, God loves me. Monday, I think so. Tuesday, I I think possibly Wednesday is like, it's a disaster. I'm not going to group. It's just not going to work. I mean, I'm just shocking as a Christian. Thursday, we're plummeting. Friday, we're in a lot of trouble. Saturday, we're in a world of hurt. Let's go to church again. I'm desperate. Sunday, I'll be going again. It's a horrible way of living. When we preach the gospel and live with the gospel daily, we live like that. We're saved by grace. It's all Jesus. It's his race. The gospel motivates, it unites, it guards, and then finally, just quickly, the gospel saves. And so it does. On this race, we've got a job to do, have we not? To go make disciples of all nations. We're called to brandish the gospel and take it out to people who don't know Jesus. As Paul tells us in Romans 1 verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God, the dynamis of God, the dynamite of God for the salvation for everyone who believes. It can blow people up in a moment. Listen, if you've got people in your lives right now that you put in the highly unlikely category, times it by a million for the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was the Osama bin Laden of the day. He was the leader of ISIS for the day. When he was on the road to Damascus, He was going to Damascus to arrest Christians, men and women and children, drag them back to Jerusalem so they could be tried and hopefully martyred for their faith. That was what he wanted to do. He wanted them killed and wiped off the earth. And on the way to Damascus, he encounters the risen Christ. And in a moment, he sees him for who he really is and he puts his faith in him as Lord and Savior. And he goes from gospel persecutor to gospel proclaimer. The bomb of the gospel went off in his life. Changed his life. So no wonder he tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, starting with me. It can save anyone. So you're never going to nice somebody into heaven. You are really nice people. You are. I know a load of unbelievers that are really nice too. And I know a lot of Mormons who are really nice too. You can't nice somebody in. Likewise, you can't argue or guilt somebody in. It ain't going to work. You know how people get from death to life? It is the power of the gospel. It is a gospel that is proclaimed. And in fact, what you do in that moment is like a sticky bum. You stick it on in their lives and you have no idea when it's going to go off. But in God's kindness, it can. It can go off whenever he wants. And their lives are completely changed. It's why we must never change the gospel or hide the gospel. We must live the gospel and proclaim the gospel. My friends, the gospel motivates, guards, it unites, and it saves. And so Paul writes Timothy and he tells him as he's coming to a close himself, he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me, Timothy. Timothy, guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Timothy, 
follow it and guard it and treasure it and hold it back. Timothy, never move on from the gospel. My friends, would we do likewise? The gospel is not just your ticket for the start line. It's that which will fuel you and balance you for each and every step of the race. When we are living around and in the gospel, the love of Christ compels us to run all the more. And we find ourselves so less distracted with the things of the world because our eyes are fixed on Him. I'm running for you. So may we be a people who every day in our lives, may we sing the gospel. I don't know what type of music you listen to. If it ain't gospel-centered music, throw it away, buy some gospel-centered music and listen to it. Allow it to become the theme tune of your life. There's so much rubbish out there. You don't want that to be the theme tune of your life. I'll have it my way. Yeah, beautiful. Totally unbiblical. What can you bring into your life that's true? Every day you're going to be distracted by the world. What can you do to stop Sing the gospel. Pray the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself. Be in this word and make a beeline for Christ each and every time. May we be a gospel-centered church. It is the gospel that guards, it motivates, it unites. It, it does so many things. But may the gospel always be our main thing. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And I thank you for the emotive words that you speak to us out of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Lord, so clearly there are many facets about this race that need to be noted. But at the same time, there's a main thing. Lord, did you forgive us for times then, weekly, when we are incredibly distracted away from you? When we find ourselves being pulled into the world, when we find ourselves being distracted by the father of lies, who tells us things that we've allegedly got to have that will make us happy, And in reality, your word tells us something so different. And when we run after false things and we find ourselves unhappy, Lord, would you help us to understand it's because we've gone off the side of the track. Lord, we humble ourselves before you and repent, talk to others and get back in the rain. Lord, we want to run this race with you. You are the founder and perfecter of our faith. So Lord, would we have eyes for one? Would we turn our eyes to you? And would your grace appear to us? Let's stand as we sing.